Welcome to the main course. This is your host, Katie Kiefer, with my co-host and partner in crime. Patrick Martins, thanks for having me, Katie. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Patrick. We're broadcasting live today from the back of Roberta's. Brunch is being served, 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Come on down. Our show is sponsored today by the Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with an extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. And if I, might, uh, if I might, Katie, I want to thank Steve Hearst in particular, Especially, yes. grandson of William Randolph Hearst, for allowing this Hearst Cattle Share project to go on with Heritage Foods again. I wanted to again. mention that, yeah. And our goal is to move 39 head of cattle. Which sounds like such a minute number, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but to move 39. Well, if you, know, you multiply that by 13 pounds. or 1,400 pounds hanging yeah. weight, absolutely. So we sell That's them in forms of, of beef. eighths. One eighth of a cow you get, uh, you know, cut into its respective pieces. And by the home, way, so. one of the best deals there is because grass fed beef usually goes for between 16 and $30 a pound. Mm-hmm. And you're selling it, what this Delivered is delivered is like $9, $9 a, pound. a pound. It's a fantastic deal. I really urge people to check it out. But my favorite oh, no, thing. No, I find it very convenient to, to have an eighth of a cow or a whole cow. Deliver yeah. to my loft in New York. Well, if you have enough re- refrigerator or freezer space, absolutely. Well, I don't actually because like I have other things in there. I know like because you do, but most people and, have room um, for forty pounds. That's really not that much. Oh, I don't know. But um, I do love it. Also, it's the worth Hearst buying family. A for. They um, they maintain a cowboy culture. They actually keep five or eight cowboys in business. And and the most adorable cowboy of all is the spreadsheet cowboy Brian Kenny. He's a king. Our friend. Easy. He's the king. He's the king of the cowboys. Well, I am so excited about today's show. We have, uh, you know, a, a real uh, salon-style, unbelievable lineup. We have absolutely Nils Norin, who is a very, very uh, respected chef, teacher. Um, Former culinary director of the French Culinary Institute and still a consultant there, right, Nils? Yes, certainly. And you're working with Marcus Samuelson and writing a book, and who knows what else we'll find out. And the one and only Jeffrey Steingarten from Vogue Magazine. What's the L for? What's the L? What's the L in Jeffrey L. Steingarten? Well, Lewis. Oh, I was hoping it was Leroy. (laughs) Yeah, I was named Le Roi. (laughs) And also, uh, now everyone here is a New Yorker, but. we have one Californian here who is an old friend and colleague of mine, Chris Carpenter. He is the head winemaker for Cardinal or for Cardinal Vineyards in Napa Valley, Cardinal Estates. And uh, he is also, uh, we know each other through Slow Food, and he is uh, someone who I worked with very closely for some of the very early on events of Slow Food. And today he is a chairman of the board of Slow Food and is actually in town for the Slow Food board meeting. Wow, so that's awesome. I asked him if he would come sit in with us, and Thanks he did. Thanks for joining us today, It's a real Chris. honor. That's very exciting to have you with Thank us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we'll be we'll be plumbing your depths in just a few minutes. Don't worry. So, now, Katie, I had a you're question. Over, yeah. I had a question to throw out to the to the masses here. Yesterday was supposed to be the end of the world, so I want to know, what did you do to prepare, and were you really disappointed when it didn't happen? For the end of the world, right? Because who is that religious group that said that anyway? It was one reverend 
Um, I think his name was Campion. Harold Camping from Howard Family Camping. Family Radio. Yeah. yeah. And it was his decision that uh, May 21st, uh, 2011 was going to be the end of the world. And it was supposed to happen at 6 p.m., which, by the way, is about the same time as the Preakness went off. Um, and sadly, we will not have a Triple Crown winner this year. But That's anyway, why he lost. Had it <laughs> Animal Kingdom lost. He was yeah. like, is it even worth it? Well, I mean, yeah. you know... <laughs> Well, I guess they assumed, you know, yeah, right. It's not, it's not going to happen, so why should I work so hard? So, um, well, you know, uh, I, I myself didn't bother to feed my cat. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother-in-law uh, started Armageddon early by um, running the dishwasher and killing a whole bunch of carpenter ants in his house. <laughs> and Mayor Bloomberg uh, tweeted, uh, if the world ends tomorrow, alternate side parking is suspended. <laughs> Which I thought was a funny tweet to get from the mayor. So, Absolutely. Uh, would yeah. you have, uh, so did you guys prepare or would you guys have felt bad if the world ended? No, I mean, I didn't prepare because obviously he predicted it back in 94 and it didn't happen then. So it's, <laughs> his track record isn't that oh, good. It's the same guy? You know, yes, the same guy. So, oh, you know, he's got a pretty bad that. track record. Yeah. So, you know, I figured, you know, worst comes to worst, if I feed some tremors, you know, 10 to 6, I'll open up a bottle of bourbon, <laughs> but that's about it. See, Nils is a researcher. He knew already that this Nils guy a was pragmatist. a fraud. <laughs> he had his bourbon ready just Je- in case. Jeffrey, would you have felt uh, prepared? I mean, had, is there anything you had left on your bucket list that you would be sad not to accomplish? Um, well, number one, I, I, uh, I went to Italy and I spent just $300 <laughs> on food. So I was obviously... Um, you were prepared for the afterlife. To, yes, Absolutely. But, you know, the world doesn't actually end on that day. If if you know about the rapture, first of all, the rapture cannot occur un, until all the Jews are collected in one place. <gasps> really? Yes. Oh, it's, it is not a, a simple end of the world. All the Jews, okay. So to be saved or to be killed? They did not answer that part. They didn't, they didn't advertise about that. Like, why, why, why do they have to be in one place? Well, they have to be segregated. Uh, no, no, because they're the chosen people, and it has to be kind of the you know, the uh, you know reestablishment of the of the old times. <clears throat> um, later, they're all killed, <laughs> but they're true. used for a, a certain is amount of time. Is this a German folktale? Wait, no. Um, is uh, I have this a question. This is all true. I mean, just read about That's the rapture. Weird. It's it is. Totally, I should have done some research. It's totally crazy and and racist. Anyway, the. The uh, later there's Armageddon. I'm not gonna, you know, that happens sometime later. It's not a matter of, of uh, kind of, you know, all all the good evangelicals going to heaven and then it's over. Right. No, it was supposed to be. It takes a long time. There's a whole series of events that occur. Yeah, it was supposed to take six months. It was supposed to end actually October 21st. Six months of pain. Yeah. Now, if it was, if it were going to end, and you were allowed a tomb for your service to humanity, writing about food, and you were allowed three or four foods to bury yourself with, Jeffrey, what would you pick? Well, what did I pick? <laughs> what would you pick? Is that a weird? What did question? you buy yesterday? Oh uh, yeah, I, I bought. Um, well, let's see. Um, maybe a hundred, not a hundred pounds. Maybe fifty pounds of cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you know, Italy has really expanded their Italian cheese department. It's it's quite good now, <clears throat> and it's, it's a very expensive, of course. <laughs> they had all this new charcuterie, so I had to buy that. Yeah. And um, 
Those are the main things that I bought there. Preserved just, cheese, preserved meats. I like it. I probably well, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, you got to have something that's going to last in case refrigeration goes out. <laughs> case in the new world. So, Chris, how about you? Were you at all prepared? Actually, Chris and I took a jog this morning through Brooklyn with Ann, and uh, we saw two clothes, male clothes and female clothes on a bench. No, no one in it. Just the the shirt. Just the, 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 and the it suits. said, you know, repent. You know, prepared oh, for the end of the world. It was kind of a nice. Did you take little... a picture? No, we were running. We oh, didn't have our bad. cameras. But um, would you have been prepared for the world to end, Chris? Oh yeah, I was. Um, I was practicing inner peace uh, with a bottle of grappa last night and you know, looking for God at the end of that bottle. Uh, no, you know, I what I did is I approached a, a number of very wealthy people and offered if they felt that they hadn't built up their karma to take care of their money um, in that short amount of time. And I'm sure they would get into heaven that That's way. That's good. That's smart. Yeah. So now you're actually in town for the slow food board meetings, and on the way over here, we were discussing like what were some of the major issues slow food usa board meeting you're the chairman of the board of slow food so what were some of the major issues and projects that you guys are uh, tackling over there well we just finished writing a strategic plan around how we're going to approach food system change and one of the things during the process of this strategic plan we interviewed all levels of our organization a good number of our membership and our and our leaders our governors the board and the staff and took a lot of what Carla Petrini, our founder, said and tried to integrate that into where we were moving with the organization. And what we came up with was access. We want food at the levels of like heritage food or your local farmer or who, what, or, or the ability to grow your own food accessible to anyone. And then how do we make, how do we how do we set up a system by way of access and, and ease of accomplishing that. And that's one of the major projects that we're working on is, is thinking about ways of setting that up. How do we get more school gardens? How do, mm-hmm. we, how do we promote more community gardens? How do we have people who can embrace growing plants, tomato plants on their, on their stoop in New York? Mm-hmm. You know? So what tactics did you come up with as the best tactics to accomplish that strategic mission? Well, a lot of it comes down to how our chapters react. You know, a lot of the work that we do at the board is big picture stuff, but trying to give tools to the chapters to make it easy for schools, for communities, for individuals to grow their own food and to understand how to access food that's grown by others, small farms, is what Slow Food USA, we're, we're a support organization for Slow Food membership. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the tactic that we're looking for. How do we, how do we give back resources to them? We're also working on becoming more of an activist organization and trying to affect in small ways, because that, you know, when you go against the, the government, you can only affect It's baby steps, essentially. How legislation is written that inhibits access or, or in fact, um, uh, uh, hides the truth from how agriculture is now viewed and and driven in the United Mm -hmm. States. Well, very, very interesting. I mean, it's really a very interesting panel we have here. So Nils, as uh, someone who's been the culinary director of the French Culinary Institute, producing, I mean, how many children or students graduate a year? 
French culinary in arts? our professional programs, <coughs> we had about a thousand students. A, a thousand students. Yeah. Wow. So a thousand students a year. Are they thinking about these issues? I mean, I understand they're learning about technique and skills and, and cooking and being a chef, but or just pastry chef, whatever it is, bread maker. But um, are they? Is there a connection here? Is this part of a curriculum that it, is? It is a connection, actually. Uh, about I think about three years ago, I started rewriting big parts of the curriculum, rearranging and rewriting, and we actually put in <coughs> a, a part being sustainability and, and all those other issues. You know, food source, where it comes from, how to think about it, and you know, not not trying to preach, but trying to give facts so they can make up their own mind. You know, whether they think it's important or not. But yes, it's it's for me, it's an important thing. You know, because you need to give them all the facts. How, in what way do you do that in the kitchen environment? I mean, are they taking notes, or is it through a opening speech that you make before? Or through uh, your purchasing? I mean, yeah, but the products that it, you use in your class demos, I would think, would have an. Well, impact. that's a hard to use very expensive yes. meats for a demo it, where they don't even need it, though. No, but but it, it's it's all of the above. I mean, obviously, you need to do it in theory, but you also need to do it in practical. And the, the best way to do it is through tastings, you know. I, I always believe in blind tastings. That's really going to tell you if it's a difference in the product or not. And, and getting students to experience it. Whether, you know, you can, it can be as simple as getting a great carrot uh, tasting that versus your regular, you know, the, your regular supermarket carrot mm-hmm. that probably doesn't have much flavor. Mm-hmm. And, and then that will open up their eyes. But as you say, unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's, it's really expensive to teach people how to cook because you have to use a lot of food products that are not necessarily going to be eaten but you have to mm-hmm. practice so obviously it would be it you can't buy the best products i wish you could but you can't mm-hmm. but tuition at your school is very 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 high isn't it it is so you could teach them how to eat caviar uh, unfortunately uh, our utility the utility bills at the schools are enormous yeah you know the rent being in Soho is pretty expensive, so I, I wish that. <laughs> now I have a like. I have a question to Jeffrey now about tasting, um, but I then after Jeffrey posed it to everyone, including you, Katie. Um, you know, if you do do blind taste tests, do commodity foods always taste worse or ever taste better? Like with meats, is a heritage breed always to the to the regular Americans to you know. Uh, Talked about tasting and taste and good and bad and because uh, I know Jeffrey, you have one of the most probably respected palates in the country, so I'd be interested. And you've been part of tastings with me in the past, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Hmm. There is no doubt in my mind that heritage or or old breed uh, pork tastes a thousand times better than commodity pork in the supermarket. I don't even think that people buy it anymore unless they have to. Uh, the, 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 uh, the commodity pork. <clears throat> One problem with uh, much of the grass-fed beef is, is uh, that it does not exhibit the um, flavor profile, as they call it, to tell that it's favored in America. And um, there's no doubt that after I've, I have uh, spent you know, one meal eating most of the grass-fed beef you can buy out there, uh, even yours, 
that I really longed for prime grade, um, long aged, 60 day uh, rib steak. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an interesting tasting I remember from a few years ago at the FCI. Um, I can't remember who conducted it, um, but it was farm salmon versus wild salmon. Hmm, how did that play out? There's no doubt that um, that almost everyone agreed that certain salmons were better than other salmons, uh, but they were not all the wild salmon. Hmm. Uh, um, obviously, nowadays, sustainability seems to require farmed fish. Um, um, if you actually see the farms, if you actually see pictures from Chile, most of our farm salmon now comes from Chile, I think. You can't have a salmon farm in the United States. Um, Canada doesn't allow you to do it. I mean, it's either from Norway or Chile, I think. Um, that's what Atlantic salmon means. There's there's no wild um, Atlantic fishery for salmon anymore um, um, in, in the Northeast. Um, so, um, the whole idea of uh, sustainability, uh, you know, I need only sustainable things except when I feel that the next generation really doesn't why should I give up a, a, a nice, juicy, wild salmon steak for the next generation? They're going to have all kinds of things we don't have. <laughs> That's interesting. Including that cloned meat that we were They're reading about in the New Yorker this week. <laughs> what happened? The New Yorker? Did you, you must have read this, Jeffrey. This, this past week's New Yorker had an um, article, which unfortunately I haven't finished yet, but it's about um, basically meat that is made in a test tube. And um, it was a very interesting piece about how, you know, in order to uh, manage the demands of uh, cattle grazing and, and livestock rearing and so forth in terms of water, grasslands, etc., um, and, and of course farming corn, um, they're going to start, instead of growing it on the hoof, they're going to start growing it in the test tube. That's the essential They've been quality. talking about that. Scientists have but been that's talking been about that. been now. Oh, yeah, right. Well, not um, a great degree, but come no, on. It, it comes out as a mush, and, uh, and and not as a steak. People have been trying to do that for about 25 or 30 years. Um, I'm sure the New Yorker article is very good, and it might even be, as opposed to almost every other food article they've had in the New Yorker, it might actually be fact-checked. But um, <laughs> Oh, hello. Take that. Yikes. <laughs> well, I just don't think... I, if, you know, if they had an article, uh, you know, that had the number of McCain's houses wrong and not seven but six, heads would roll at the New Yorker. <laughs> but if they have everything about food wrong, well, it's food, you know. That's food. Well, it's too yeah. much trouble. We'll leave to that to Vogue. So but, now, um, on that tasting level, Chris, I mean, what does your average wine go for? I mean, this is getting back to the elitist <laughs> argument. I mean, that is a big thing. No, there's a connection here about okay. tasting elitism and stuff. What are you, you're you're the high end winemaker for Cardinal? So what does that 
costs per. So I make I make three wines. I make Lahoda, which averages about sixty dollars a bottle. To who? Ouch. To a, at a store. At a retail outlet, yeah. So that's what. So if you went to Sherry Lehman or Morels or wherever, you'd get it for sixty dollars okay. a bottle. Um, Cardinal is two hundred, and Lacoya, my other brand, is three hundred. Jim Cricket. Uh, and those are those are very small brands. We don't make a lot in there. How many cases does each one produce? Or total? Cardinal is about two thousand cases. Uh, Lacoya averages about fifteen hundred cases a year. Uh, Describe the terroir. What? Where in the valley is this? So these are in the mountains. This okay. is Mount Veeder, Howl Mountain, Diamond Mountain, Spring Mountain. Our our bailiwick is Mountain Vineyards. And these are these are wines that are crafted for the very high end wine drinker. Uh, it's elitism and what I do are very different uh, I sell to a very specific demographic but there are wines that touch everybody and anybody can access wine it just depends where you are in in your interest in spending money on wine you know so elitism is more about choice well, it's about perception, one, how, how certain foods are perceived, and again, accessibility. If, if we're talking about spending money, uh, you know, an extra 25 to 40% on a piece of meat, how many families are going to be able to do that on a consistent basis and stay within their budget? Uh, but that... that 25 to 40% is getting you a, a vast array of benefits. And as you were saying, Nils, it's there's a certain amount of education that has to happen that is the money that you're spending worth it? Can you change some of your habits as a family to encompass that? And can we change some of the parameters by which that it costs that much? I mean, we want the farmers around to be able to produce that, and farming costs a lot of money. And they have and it to get a fair price. Yeah, and they have to get a fair price as well. And the, and the consumer has to get a, a product that they know is is again good for them good for the environment that it's being produced in and readily available and there are no barriers and mm-hmm. our our society has put up a lot of barriers both culturally and governmentally and a lot of what we do with slow food is about trying to break those barriers down and change how we approach the food system and that's done on the grassroots level and there are other projects that we work on a much broader level now, um, let me add this a bit back to the students. It's very interesting. I mean, to, to the, this panel, I, I find this fascinating. Katie, you haven't said anything. I'm, like, worried about you. No. no I just don't want to, you know, jump on anybody else's uh, whatever else they're saying. But, Nils, are you – well, I say you. I mean, by you, I mean this Culinary Institute of America, the French Culinary Institute, uh, the Institute of Culinary Education. I mean, are the students that are coming out today that are populating our restaurants, our – Diners and now it seems much more democratic. They're even populating beach hamburger stands in Far Rockaway, producing really great food. Um, are you is for instance at the French Culinary Institute and other schools teaching them how to make fast food too, and make that good, or are you teaching them high end? This is how to charge twenty eight dollars for a piece of duck. Uh. No, but you teach, you teach cooking, and cooking can be applied either as fast food, as really high-end, as casual, as anything. I mean, it's, it's just getting an understanding of what, what is cooking, what happens when you cook. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you treat an ingredient? How do you pick an ingredient? So, so I mean, it could, it could be applied to anything. But actually, I want to go back a little bit about the elitist and, and you, know, you know, how people can afford or not afford to buy good products. And, and one thing that has happened... Uh, over the past probably 40 more years 
is it's been a shift in how uh, families' incomes are used. It used to be like a majority of, of the income was actually spent on food, but now it's a majority of income is actually spent on housing and a much less percentage spent on food. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's been forced, we've been forced to produce cheaper food yep. to be able to afford housing, mm-hmm. which is weird, kind of a weird shift that happened within the past, and probably more than 40 years, but, but it, you can, so you that's can, going back, not answering your first question. You, you, can, you, can no, thank, I, you can thank Agricultural Secretary Butts, which was, he was around, Godwin was he around. Nixon. Yeah, he was Nixon's, yeah, and he was the guy that changed that paradigm, and that's the what cultural was his, aspect. Uh, sense of about. fence row on every farm? From no, fence, fence row to fence row. Fence row to fence row. Yeah, I think there's more to, I mean, I think it's more than just uh, whether or not we want uh, better housing or we have to spend more money on housing. I mean, when when Ray Kroc and his ilk began creating the whole hamburger empire, um, which we're kind of seeing the end game of now, I think, with these high end, um, you know, five guys and fries and, you know, all these new burger chains that are sourcing sustainably. And, and even to talk about the test tube meat we were just talking about, which is mush, which to me is just another form of hamburger. But, um, you know, I think that's that's when Americans started to get away from cooking for themselves and really caring about what their ingredients were and seeing food as more of a convenience and a commodity than as a sort of pleasurable experience as the Slow Food um, Organization has, has been trying to promote for low these many years. Yes, Jeffrey. Jeffrey just <laughs> grabbed see, the mic. Yeah, I can see you got something heavy to say here. <laughs> well, no, go, going back to test tube just for a minute, the real promise of test tube food was, and I think still is, citrus fruit. Every one of those tear-shaped, you know, parts. Yes, uh-huh. An orange those or, little cell or, things, yeah. yeah. Those are cells. Those are whole cells. Those are among the largest um, cells in the whole plant kingdom. Okay, if, if you can culture... The plant cells of all kinds. Why can't you culture this? I mean, you could grow. Basically, what I'm saying is, you could grow oranges, grow oranges with the pulp in it. Right. And um, why they're not doing that? I don't know. Instead of growing trees and having that whole industry oh, yeah, that whole, uses up, you, the whole tree uses up thing. so many resources. Well, whole, Katie, do you want to mention? You do remember the quote? That Bill Gates said to kind of nonprofit, isn't this what Jeffrey's saying, or am I misunderstanding? Bill Gates was like, the GM GMO foods oh. can do the job, and it's about That's time right. that people start respecting the fact that it is that not there bad. is a there is a place for GMO foods, and you and actually his There's message no was study. essentially that. Um, that the fight between uh, commodity agriculture promoting GMO food and the the community that is against it, very much against it, um, you know, they have to come to some kind of terms because, of course, the efficiencies that are available through these products that have been engineered um, far outweigh the detriment to oh, the yeah? environment. I, I don't oh, know yeah? if this is true well, or not. Is there a oh, I don't think you know that at all. I don't is, think there's any study that says that GMO foods are particularly bad or harmful to human health. So I looked no, at the so that I know that the European, the Europeans, they have absolutely resisted they, it. Of course, yeah. They say uh, the they farmer have, loses choice as to what he can grow. They also kicked Monsanto out of Europe. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I'm just presenting the argument. I'm not. I, I do not know. I'm not a scientist, and I can't say that I know one way or the other which is Bill the right Gates, answer. Uh, to, to, uh, Bill Gates and I usually 
to think the same way, but um, we were in the same economic well, bracket. No, so. exactly. <laughs> but I may have to. I may have to part company. <laughs> well, I think that there is something to what he's saying in the sense that there has to be some unification of vision, and we can't continue a sort of polarized. Um, community, you know, a polarized attitude towards how our food is produced, given that by the year 2050, we're going to have how many more billions of people to feed? Two billion or three billion more people? No uh, no extra land to feed from? And no less study water. proving that it's bad. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't you know don't the answer it. to this, but I, I think that there has to be some kind of common ground that has to there be There's going to be three billion more people on, on, if the rapture is a bust. <laughs> I'd say right now the rapture is It's a bust, yeah. A bust. It's a bust. Well no, because the we Mayan, the Mayans got next year. Under the Mayans their chance. Yeah. But as for I the, put my money on the Mayans. As for the you. amount of money we spend on food, the United States has fairly consistently spent about thirteen percent of income of, of family income on, on uh, food. The big No, I had read much less than that actually, Six. Well, how much do you think it is? I, I have read that it's six percent of the of the of the family income is spent on food. Let's bet a thousand dollars to you and me. I'll just you go have a thousand bucks. You want to lose on this? <laughs> oh, jeez, oh. shake right now. <laughs> I kind of follow these statistics. You know, you can get them from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yeah. It's on your computer. Mm, yeah. Do you know how to use Google? Hey, Jack, there's one guy who I trust above all for Jack, facts. Check it out, man. Jack Inslee. Tell I don't me, think it's uh, no 13%. What percentage do because Americans or Europe, the world? No. Americans. Just Americans. Americans. Because in Europe, for instance, it's more like 25%. Get us a good source. Now, in some cases, like when you're looking at third world countries where there are great food riots going on because there isn't enough food and food prices have escalated so much thanks to the cost of our commodities, then... You know, then they're spending way too much of their of their uh, family income on food, and hence a great deal of civil unrest ensues. Poor people in the United States also spend much higher percentage of their income on food. But the people who are billionaires in the United States spend a very no matter what they eat, even if you know, you know, even if they eat, drink your wine every day, they still spend. Um, a very small percentage uh, on food. Well, Carlo hey Petrini guys, had... So, oh, real, yeah, real quick, I'm not thrilled with the source. It's Huffington Post. What? But, That's um, good. In 1949, Americans spent 22% of their income on food, and they say in 2009 that, that went to 10%. 10%. So, Katie... Yes, we have to split the difference. You have to give $800 or something? <laughs> <laughs> Carlo... No, that's, what, that's what you guessed. Yeah, that's what you said. Oh, Huffington Nils. Post. Oh, I would stake my life on something in Huffington Post, wouldn't you? Yeah, so I like that Middle Eastern woman. She's got balls. What is Vogue? What's Vogue's number? Yeah, what's Vogue? What does Vogue say? Well, all we have to do is just go to the computer and go to the Bureau of, uh, of, of Labor, Labor Statistics. Statistics. I mean, it's not Bureau of Labor Statistics or well, to the USDA. Carlo Pedrini had a great line. He said, um, and "I'm going to I'm going to mess this up, but um, very poor farmers produce excellent, nutritious, healthy food for the rich." but remain very poor. Meanwhile, massive companies produce the least nourishing food in the history of mankind to the poor and get rich. Yeah. So very where that goes, paradigm. I'm not sure, but it, it's like something has to change with that because that's basically what's happening. And that's yeah. where I think, by the way, we're going to take a break now um, and then come back for our second half. 
you know, with slow food would be an interesting thing. Whereas I started a turkey project with them that was in the back of a pickup truck, you know, in Kansas at the back of a slaughterhouse. It would be interesting now if they kind of forced Purdue and Smithfield and the real culture brokers for food to the table, you know, through signatures and stuff and literally enlarge the size of the pens at those places or remove antibiotics for 10% of the flock. And that kind of, that's a battle. Now that's a revolution oh, while still legislative in nature that I would find really inspiring. And um, anyway, so food always does inspiring work. Well, let's Let come back that, in a but. minute. Cause we've got a lot. We have plenty tons to talk about there. Just about the antibiotics issue, which I just read. I, in fact, I did a little behind the scenes.
<laughs> this is the main chorus yeah. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my co-host, Patrick Martins, is in the studio together with Nils Noren of the, formerly the culinary director, still a consultant for the French Culinary Institute, um, Jeffrey Steingarten, who is poring over statistics in the um, engineering booth, and Chris Carpenter, who is the chairman of the board of the Slow Food USA uh, organization. And so a winemaker. And a and fantastic winemaker. And, and a father of two. An ex-defensive lineman for nothing else than the Fighting Illini, Get which is uh, the Chicago College. It is no small feat. And he was this close to actually playing to in the pro. NFL. But what was it? It was your 40-yard dash? It was my 40-yard dash. God, that is so wrong. You What's had such wrong? A- it wasn't dashing enough? It wasn't dashing enough. <laughs> it's very slow, as a matter of fact. And that's not my participation in the slow food movement. <laughs> yes. Therefore, there I knew the where I had to go. The fortunate beneficiary. <laughs> Hilarious. So, well, we were talking about, um, you know, as Jeffrey is looking for these statistics, I'm, I can't wait for him to come back and is give us the true Jack word. In the no, no, no. He's like busy with the computer. But um, we were also talking about other reasons why uh, the food budget has um, declined in the United States, partly because food is more is cheaper because that's what we wanted. I mean, we wanted to give up control of our. I see this as like in the 40s and 50s after the war when food became, um, you know, highly processed highly commoditized and everybody and the women started entering the workforce and people were not no longer cooking at home I mean this is a it's a whole series of 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 you know events and and trends that came together to create the system that we have now and then on top of that of course as we were saying in the break People want to buy stuff besides food. They want to buy cars. They want to buy um, iPhones. They want to buy mm-hmm. flat sneakers. screen TVs and sneakers. And that's and I think a lot of food dollars are going towards those kinds yes. of status what purchases. What Nils said was very, very, he hit it right to the head. It's what you choose to spend your money yeah. on. And, and you know, uh, a guy like Michael Pollan is like, you know, I can't get too close to an elitist argument. And, you know, he's not wrong to say that. But at the same time, um, some people could be very poor from Appalachia, not and a dollar, better. and just want to be a chef. They yeah. could be watching the food channel and be like, I like that guy. And then well, for them to buy lobster from Maine via FedEx for some insane amount of money, that's not that absurd if they then choose to have simple clothes and not want to spend sure. in other ways. Well, and also I think it's possible to be, um, you know, have not the biggest income and still eat well. I think it depends on your traditions and where you come from and whether or not you're still cooking at home and whether or not you have that um, background and knowledge that helps you make better food for yourselves. And that, you know, as Patrick and I have argued many times, Nils... In fact, I want to get Nils' opinion um, on this. About why, you know, about the fact that, for instance, home ec um, is gone from schools, that kids do not learn how to cook from their parents the way they used to... Yeah, or, you know, know how to fix things or anything like that. But, I mean, any sort of... um, Actually, let's go right into this. Any sort of vocational... Like, vocational schools have gone away. And and FCI started out as a vocational school. It was Apex. Apex Tech is is still Apex Tech. And then Dorothy's father started that. And then she ran that. And and now does a vocational school for chefs. So when kids come out of FCI, um, you know, it's an as Jeffrey pointed out, it's an expensive school. It and is expensive. Does it take a long? T- I mean, are they able to find jobs 
that right away help them start paying down that student debt? Or is the job pool in the restaurant market that they think, do they come out with expectations that are realistic about how much money they're going to make? And then or, the other question that you, you want know, to answer from everything we've been talking about. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but, I mean, <laughs> this, spin this out for the next 20 minutes. I mean, it's, it's not an easy to answer question, right? But here's what it is. Yes, if you're going to go into a restaurant, are you going to make 10 11 $12 an hour as a line cook? Or prep cook? Yes, absolutely. Is that going to help you pay your, your student loan? Probably not as right. much. But the other thing is, first of all, and, and this is just a fact, you know, we do get a lot of students that, you know, that the cost of tuition doesn't matter to them because right. they come from wealthy families. And, you know, that's a fact. And then the other thing is that there's actually so many other things you can do now than just go in and cook in a restaurant with a culinary education. So... So it's Meaning, not as simple. For instance, catering or catering. I mean, even you know, even if you look at all the high-end supermarkets now, which actually, which butchers is a, yeah, butchers. Which is I wanted which to ask you about institutional thing. cooking. Actually, sorry? sorry, I wanted to ask you about institutional cooking, but finish. Yeah, no, but so so I mean, there's a few things. Yes, so if you're going to be a line cook and you pay your tuition, probably not. And again, you know, we. You know, at the FCI, we get a lot of people that are like, I was a lawyer, but I hated it, and now I go into food. And, you know, it doesn't matter if I make $10 or $12 an hour, I can still afford it. So you have that. Second you know, I, I wish... I can stand up for 14 yeah. hours a day. Yeah. No, exactly. That's, that, that's the biggest hurdle for me. No but, kidding, man. Yeah. But then I, but I wish there could actually be an affordable culinary education that was, that was really good. In this country, and, but and that's, does it pay, Nils? I mean, do most people that graduate from from your school or from you know schools yeah. in general? It doesn't have to just no, be about no. your school. Do they get a job that pays down? I mean, are there enough jobs out there like these line cooks that get paid eleven dollars an hour? Do most of them, if they stick with it and are fairly talented, end up eventually paying the school debt yes. down? Yeah. And yes. making a yes, absolutely. I mean, works. if you, if you look works. at the defaults on on on, I mean, I only know. Our schools. I mean, I looked a little bit at others. It's it's very small percentage. It's a really small percentage of, p- of kids who default on their yeah, loans. Yeah, that default on their loans. Now, what about institutional dining? Katie brought up a very interesting point because I understand your restaurants, and we'll talk about those ladies red, uh, later. Red Rooster, these restaurants. But what about uh, yeah, working for Sodexo or university? No, but like yeah. working yeah. in but university ballpark. dining, hotels, um, even hospitals. Because yeah, all of those are trying to raise their their the quality of their food. Absolutely, well, so. it's a way of attracting yeah. business. But there's a few things that happen. I mean, there's there's much more focus on food today than it was five years ago, ten years ago, and certainly when I started cooking, it was like everybody thought it was crazy. We're going to you know go into cooking, but there's more focus on food. There's more fo- focus on good ingredients, good food, well prepared food, and it has put a lot of pressures of the on the Sodexos, the big hotels, uh, even hospitals, schools. So I mean, there is a movement of getting more food. There is, you know, if even if you look at the big, uh, uh, you know, manufacturers of processed food, like they would never think about hiring a chef ten years ago. Now they're actually hiring yes. quality people. Look at to the raise. Domino's. They, they yeah. This is our chicken chef. Yeah. Well, or Chipotle's or or, or yeah. even Kellogg's. So so there is actually there have been a lot of pressure put on those companies mm-hmm. to make better food, make better choices. Right. So I mean I think that's something positive, and I think that's going to keep going. 
And that's going to happen. So, like, you so, could come out of culinary school and score a job, say, with General Mills or General you Foods, could. Uh, working in a test kitchen there that would probably pay a pretty decent wage. Yeah. It's not as sexy as restaurant no. work. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the image, like the people who, the kids yes, who come in to um, into FCI, and whether it's somebody who's starting a second or third career, as you mentioned, you know, middle-aged people who like can't stick the corporate world anymore, or whether it's some young person. I mean, how much of that do they think that they're going to like waltz into some? You know, they're going to finish their training in nine months and then they're going to take over a kitchen space and they're going to be Anthony Bourdain and it's going to be really incredibly cool and sexy. And 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 how much of it is like, oh, Working wow, I just really foods. like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just really like this process. No, but there's this obviously you get quite a uh, fair share of people that come in with that notion, you know, yeah. it's so it's so cool, you know, working in restaurants. But, you know, we're trying to set the, stra- uh, the record straight right away. I mean, it's not going to happen. Sorry. Yeah. You're not going to yeah. be Bobby Flay. If it happens, great for you, but the chance is pretty slim. So, pretty I mean, slim that you'll cook food as bad as Bobby Flay's. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, I think Bobby Flay is very good. Yeah, no, but whatever it is. Even, but, you know, we're trying to set it straight because yeah, I, you know, I don't want. It's it, not a one shot wonder. There's no, no kingmaker that you can bank no. on. And no. I made a board game once and they were like, you never want to have a kingmaker. One thing lands you the victory because then it's not fair. And, right. and you can't no. bank on that, even though you hear of these success stories. Right, right. So you do. So you debunk the idea that you're gonna like, even if you're like kingmaker, really hot. You know, no matter how hot you are, if you're not an incredibly good chef by the end of your thing, the chances yeah. of you uh, getting a, a, a gig on the Food Network or or scoring some fantastic restaurant job are slim to none. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess you can score something in Food Network without being a good chef because I have plenty of people that are in but hey ho but I would still but still the, the chance is very slim anyway so. alright we have Jeffrey back with Jeffrey is finally and he, not only that he's printed Excel it sheet. Jeff, oh, you no. are the best you Excel are absolutely sheet. the best oh okay God. report bring it on coming baby. in bring it Jeffrey on Jeffrey Steingarten if you eliminate <laughs> the top richest 20% who spend, they pay a very low percentage of their income on food, then the average in America is 13.7%. Okay. Oh. I stand okay. corrected, Wait, Jeff. Say that again, Jeffrey. Another, that is very okay. the average, comment. The average you know, consumer unit is called. Uh-huh. The family of people living together or people alone. To spend 13.7% of their income on food. If you remove the, the top, the top the, the 20%, 20% who spend a very low percentage on, on food because they're so rich. Do they further break that down by restaurant versus uh, food that they're purchasing for? Now it's about it? half and half. Good but question. that also includes, you know, cafeterias. Some people... Fast I'm, food. I'm, I'm, I've never had a job... Well, I understand that at some jobs they have cafeterias and stuff. Yes. Someone did one show me the... Those people walking around in front of your house that yeah. you see. Right. By the way, Bobby, Bobby Flay is a very good cook. I know. Whatever he does on, on television. Also, whenever he's uh, well, you an Iron Jeff. Chef, and I've been yeah. an Iron Chef. You're a judge. But, um, I've got to say that I was a little surprised in the beginning because I didn't have the same opinion. He's, he's very good. No, there's no way he'd be successful. No, he's not very, successful yeah, if he wasn't he's a very, very good. good. Cook. The guy's a good cook. Naturally. Yeah, but, 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 and he has a very okay, and I would personality. Say that, I mean, more power. I would say to that him. everyone who 
that all of the Iron Chef from the, the, the you know the kind of permanent. You mean people, Mario Batali? Almost uh, all those guys are very good cooks, very good, and they're very imaginative cooks. The, the um, not always the people from other parts of the country, but they're usually good cooks too. The, the bad cooks on all those channels are, uh, 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 you know, are, are on the gimmicky shows. Right. Yes. Well, how do you it's also the idea that, the idea that now we have almost everything on television, every kind of food show on television is a contest. Yes. But is Top Chef That's a very, very bad thing. Hmm? Jeffrey Top Chef? I've only judged actually Top Chef something once, and those were supposed to be amateurs. But they were good? No, they were terrible. Oh, really? But are they, not, are they supposed to be amateurs? I thought they were all restaurant. I mean, they all had jobs in restaurants as cooks. Not the one that I judged. Oh, really? It was just like home but I was actually, consumer, you know, like your average Joe People kind of like guy? Katie. No, yeah, the, right. No, no, they were more than home cooks because, you know, uh, they had been practicing, mm-hmm. to, you know, at home to kind of to, to, to go into the business. And they were displaying their skills here. It was amazing how much they didn't know that all of us... Well, they hadn't gone to FCI. <laughs> no, they hadn't gone to FCI. But, <laughs> but also, I don't think that they had... There's a, and there's something. I mean, there's a dirty secret I have to to tell people. Um, Jack, is the live stream working? This is big. <laughs> <laughs> Most people uh, who are successful in food... Or who are, um, you know, not even successful. Most people who are real foodies, as opposed, I think, to well, I don't know, but to people who are really into NASCAR or something, have food on their mind twenty-four hours a day. I think about food probably. Well, I work in food, but left to my own devices, like on a Saturday, I would probably think about food like half the day. I think about yeah. I mean, in my days when I was actually cooking for a living, I thought about food pretty much 24 hours a day. Yeah. You're right, Jeff. Because I, mean, I worked I, I mean, I would go to bed reading a mm-hmm. cookbook um, just for ideas, and then I would get up in the morning and think about, like, oh, what am I feeling making today? Because I had that opportunity. These kids, because I, mean, I work on food, same for me. Yeah. I was at uh, Kitchen Arts and, and uh, Letters yesterday. Knack Waxman's place? Because Knack Waxman has a collection of Jello brochures Ooh. from starting in, like, in 1905 or something. How delicious. I mean, quite amazing. And I wanted to look at them for possible Do they article. have a, a series of Bill Cosby's weird-looking sweaters? Is there like a photo exhibit of all of his... <laughs> no, but I bet there were no, some right? really groovy jello molds. No, now showed. that you mention it, no. That is um, a crappy collection, knack. But anyway, so there were these, uh, these thick old French cookbooks. Nothing really new or astounding. But I just sat there. I mean, after I did, the, the, you know, the thing that I had to do, I just sat there just reading about Sol Meunier. Um, sure. Foodies are like that. Yeah. The real foodies. And I'm afraid that these kids, on this particular MasterChef or show, that's not what they do. I don't think so. Yeah. There's also the question, can you, can you learn to be a cook unless you have... Unless you have enough money, 
Yeah, well, you know, be able to do, eat out. do kids know techniques? I mean, when you go no, out, a actually, lot. the question is, do they have a palate when they come in? Yes, that's it's an even the technique question. they're there to learn. But the palate, do they come in and know that something that is they it, want is something it to genetic, taste a certain way, or can it no, be learned? No, I think you can certainly train your palate. Of course, I mean it's Experience, like anything. You know, yeah. you can you Exercise. can train yourself to run faster or jump higher, uh, but you got to have some kind of talent for it. I mean, I know plenty of people that. You know they can they can try to train the palate. It wouldn't work, but you know for most people, I think you know it might take longer or shorter depending on you know if you have it in you or not. If you've tasted enough things, one of the you'll first know. jobs I had was at the um, when I worked in a restaurant was in uh, at the Martha's Vineyard. It was the Edgartown um, Yacht Club. This was back in 1858. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> And um, the two guys that ran the kitchen were a very jolly pair of Italian dudes from Long Island, the Ingenito brothers, Pasquale and Paul Ingenito. And I think actually one of them went on to run the Russian Tea Room subsequently. But anyway, and the thing is, they had gone to the CIA, and as far as I was concerned, they had no palate. Now, I had no technical training, and I had no background in culinary, and they were basically, I got the job through a favor, and I was completely unqualified, and they hated me from the get-go. But the thing that I had that they didn't have was taste. <laughs> but, no, do but, people, but they the only reason why successful. that story is uh, that story is not credible uh, because the Russian team well, was always no, good. Because back then the CIA hadn't been founded yet. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's true. But no, but I think you know there are plenty of people that cook. Our cooks, our chefs that don't care about what the food tastes like. Yeah, right. Really? What do they, they care about? Money? How much money? Yes, the they make it. They do it for a living. Yeah. It's, it's a, a job. job. They, they were they good managers. They couldn't care. Do Best. most you both you eat are what percentage of restaurants, any type of restaurant? I mean, minus the lowest percentile and the you know are, are good. I mean, you guys have tasted. It is your job to be expert palates. So both of you guys get literally paid to have expert palates. How many restaurants are very good? Five percent? Oh, much more than that. Oh, more. Much more than that. Every pizzeria is good. Every one? By the slice? Familia is not good. I'm sorry. Sal and Carmine. Because pizza is the perfect food. So um, I, I would agree with pizza is the perfect food. <laughs> I wouldn't agree that every pizza pizzeria is yeah, good. Uh, totally. Okay. Well, no. let's remove the lowest fast food produced. pizza by the slice a restaurant. Something that someone would spend twenty five dollars or more. Per person, so that it encompasses the twenty-five dollar and under thing, which was actually started yeah, which by we Eric about Asimov. Last week with uh, Eric, was our yeah. guest last week. He started the twenty-five and under section. So let's say twenty-five dollars or more. How many are really worth it? I mean, percentage-wise. If if you only think about food, or if you take the whole restaurant, the restaurant as a whole, food, food. Just, just food. food. Yes, Forget about the service, the decor. Blah, yeah, because that that's a the separate trimmings. world, and yeah, I'd be interested right. to know that too, but separately. I don't know. That's a hard question. Jeffrey, you have a lot more experience with this. 10%. No, more. More. I think it's more than 10%. And it, but also are we, the slice. No, but I would have to say that it depends on where you are. If you're yeah. in Manhattan, oh, right. Good then point. maybe yeah. it's a little higher. If you're in Brooklyn, What's the range? then it's probably are like the America? national average. If it's in um, Iowa, it would be below Brooklyn. What? Wait, the national average Brooklyn. would be below Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Way below Brooklyn. No, but wait so a I would say Brooklyn would it? be the national average, even though a lot of people are, are trying very hard. It's a great point. But, and they're succeeding. But a lot of people are succeeding. But um, As a country, but, but, probably... 
But here's why I think it's the, it's the real issue, though. Like, there's, if you look at how many restaurants over 25 can be successful one day or two days a week, it's probably a higher percentage. But the hardest part in any restaurant is consistency. Mm. Bingo. Interesting. You know, and if you talk about consistency every single day you're open, then that's much less. That is very, very I've heard this from a lot of chefs. I'm Thomas Keller. Does says in a number of his books that, 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 uh, that consistency is the most important quality of a great restaurant and the most elusive. I am so against that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't care about consistency. I care about my meal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but everybody knows but, who you are, no, actually, Jeff. Yeah. So you're going to get no, a good no. One. Uh, but you know, you know. I mean, if I get three lamb chops and then someone else gets four. Um, you know, do I throw a fit? Uh-huh. No. no. Or if the food, if it's very handmade food, say some of the food here at, at Roberta's, and if it's not as good today, or it's better today than it was last time, it, it doesn't really piss me off. No, but for, for you have come because from a different... handmade food, you know? But you come from a different perspective than me. If I'm in the kitchen, if I run a restaurant, yes. I need to make sure that your plate is good, Patrick's plate is good, you know, everyone. So it's yeah, no, it's it, true. But but no one is given a percentage. It's interesting. I would guess national average, because the rest of the country would bring New York and San Francisco down, probably four or five percent. In New York, maybe twenty. But um, now, Chris, I want to throw to you because we're about to take our break and we're going to have a new uh, Alicia is going to talk about sous vide Mary cooking. Mary Dan Eads and her husband, doctors. Are you sure her name the isn't Alicia? Eads. I'm quite sure. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, they're going to talk about sous vide, which will lead us into a whole fun little discussion. So we're going to talk all about and... technology in a minute. But this is a very fascinating conversation also because Nils said it was a good question, which no guest has ever said that I've ever asked a good question. So I like that. <laughs> but I want to apply... Uh, this same argument to wine uh, because one thing I think people have learned is price does not always equal quality no no way I mean you can it's a whole industry especially in Napa Valley (laughs) (laughs) well a whole industry well you guys are about to get into it and this is why I'm turning it over to Chris but uh, I mean tell us about um, good wines Uh, how many what percentage of the wines in the world are good and 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 explain to jeffrey why uh, northern california has the best terroir maybe arguably in the world (laughs) whoa well it does that that's that's an excellent question patrick excellent question tag excellent jack that's right make sure you get the whole question in man you know it's it depends i think the the larger question is the dollar price that you're paying for the bottle are you getting that in the bottle and by percentage wise you know if you look across all the different categories of pricing you're probably at maybe 25 to 35 percent is what you're you're, getting the value is what is where you're getting is where you're getting the value regardless price so if you're spending fifty dollars are you getting an eighty dollar wine are you if you're spending two hundred dollars are you getting a four hundred dollar bottle of wine and i'd say you are in that 25 to 35 percent range uh you know so that's that and i think that goes to food and to restaurants as well and you have to you have to be a conscious consumer to make those decisions would you recommend someone who's like i have four hundred dollars to spend tonight i go out once a year 
Would you recommend that they spend $200 on a bottle of wine? It depends if they're into wine at that level. You know, but, I mean, what wait. do you get at the value? Yeah, I'm going to back you yeah. up here and say, From how is it that you once you get past a certain level of pricing in wine, um, what makes a wine cost 100 200 400 or $1,000 a bottle? Well, there's especially if it's a relatively new wine. I mean, yeah, I can I mean, see if you're buying something that was laid a, down. It's a fair, it's a fair question, uh, and and you know, I could go into the into the realities of the cost of goods, where where it's farmed, how it's farmed. Uh, you know, it, if you're getting four tons per acre of grape versus twelve tons per acre of grape, mm-hmm. if you're farming biodynamically versus conventionally, uh, if you're sort, hand sorting every grape that comes into the winery and the processes that we use in the winery to produce these kind of wines. Scarcity comes into play if you're if you're making 500 cases of a highly critiqued wine versus uh, a million cases of a fairly critiqued wine. That scarcity is a is a major motivator in economics, and it's it's part of how wine is priced. Wine is is as much a product of pleasure as it as it is to some people something that is of value from an investment standpoint or from a right. from a from a memory standpoint whatever it happens to be and ultimately a lot of it is the reality of what the market is willing to bear you know that's that's the we come down to it, it's it's what the market is willing to bear well very interesting are we wrapping up i mean i think we have to, i want to i want the last pop stand booyah because this is a friggin' awesome show. NPR, Martha Stewart, take notice. Shows like this, they Great happen panel. here frequently in this studio We've across our 21 fortunate. shows in the network. We're great admirers of people, and we appreciate them for coming all the way out well, here. Well, Chris Carpenter, one thing, you know, know you- one thing you have to say about wines is that if a wine wins a gold medal somewhere, the price is going to go up. But it's the same wine you had before. <laughs> so, no. so, God, so yes, we're talking so about kind of you are hand, worth the wait. Hand sorting and yeah. and uh, you know and, and and throwing away half the half the bunches and everything. You know, a better glass in the bottles. It is a little bit up there in the fluff, but it is also real. And as uh, what Chris said, I thought was excellent. If you take ten percent of the grapes. Uh, uh, that are offered to you and make a wine, then yes, that is worth the 200 If you take 80% of the grapes, then it's not even maybe worth $30 for the bottle. So it's all about taste. And Well, and following up to Jeffrey's comment, why does it go up in price? Because if you win a, a gold medal or you get 100 points, now everybody wants to get a bottle of it. They all buy it. The scarcity issue becomes even more predominant in that particular wine. And then it becomes but, a status but you thing can all, as well. And it's also because you can make money off it at that point. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, right. You know, ultimately, you know, ultimately, sure, food and wine is a business, and and in order to sustain these farmers that are doing the right thing, that are growing the right food, we got to keep them in business, and we've got to give them the opportunity to make some money so they can sustain their families. Where that business falls is is mercurial, as it is in the wine industry, and and it one year is going to be a great year, the next year you have a crap crop, and and you don't make as much money, mm-hmm. and so. It's it's a business, and we have to, to a certain degree, you have to capitalize when you need yeah. to, and you need to, you know. So, and therefore, I think that that's a good argument that I've heard over the past tough few weeks why they should remove all taxes from winemakers because it's a business. Mm-hmm. That's but, right. But you know, it's a small business like oil. <laughs> but they should remove all taxes from oil, then we'll have more energy, right? I mean, haven't we heard this? 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's over what the oil makers over. would like you to believe. Anyway, Chris, I know you have to bust yeah, out Yeah, I'm going to walk Chris out, but we're about Chris to come back in a second. Us. Chris we're Carpenter <laughs> of the Cardinal. I have Vineyard. one more stat to share with you guys. Okay, cool. Go for it, baby. Of you the time, one with you. <laughs> of the time I that Americans tomorrow. spend eating no, food. Not t- uh, tomorrow, I will. Those with, with a bachelor's your, uh, degree or higher spend more time eating than the rest of the country. Wait a second. Hold on. Jeffrey and Chris don't understand that they can have conversations off mic. Hold on, we're removing the mics from Chris This is so bureaucratic, I can't understand bureaucracy. <laughs> we're, we're the Italians. That's why we're I've never part had a job. An, we're part anarchy, part bureaucracy. <laughs> Tell me, uh, Jack. One, say more that time, one more time, real quick. Um, the percentage of time that Americans spend eating food, um, those with a bachelor degree or higher spend more time than the rest of the country eating food. Indeed, because they're not eating fast Jack, food. I'm giving you a 30-minute back massage That's after right. this show yeah. because that hey, is amazing. We'll be back in hey, 10 seconds. I got the early Monday morning working blues. I put on my ragged worn-out working shoes. Well, the weekend was too short and I can't lose. Cause when the Lord made the working girls, He made the blues. Well, I'm tired of working my life away and giving somebody else all of my pay. Well, they get rich on the profits that I lose and leave me here. announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime, Patrick Martins, who's just stepped out for a moment. In the studio, I have the wonderful, the exclusive, the very special uh, Jeffrey Steingarten and the equally wonderful and exclusive Nils Noren. It's a great pleasure to have you both. And on the line, we have, uh, calling in from Chicago from the restaurant show, um, Mary Dan Eats and her husband, Mike. You are your doctors, right? Uh-huh. Welcome to the main course. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you guys were able to find a phone without too much trouble. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a challenge. It has it's been a place. challenge. I know. <laughs> so now you guys are, um, you are in the business of sous vide for the uh, consumer equipment, yes. correct? Yes. Correct. What's the name of your company? Eads uh, Appliance Technology. Sorry? Uh, Say that again? Eads Appliance oh, Technology. Oh, Eads Appliance Technology. But the the uh, the um, machine itself is called the sous vide supreme. Mm-hmm. And tell me, Mary, why, Mary Dan, excuse me, why did you guys get into this gig? 
Well, I'll, I'll crazy? tell that because it's really, uh, he was uh, the instigator of it. Yeah, we went to a medical meeting in Las Vegas, and for some bizarre reason, I ordered a pork chop through room service, which uh, I almost never order a pork chop, and I almost never order anything through room service, but we had driven over there until it was late, and I got it, and when it came, it was absolutely perfectly cooked. It was nice and pink all the way through from side to side with just a little sear on the outside, and I couldn't figure out how they had done that. Uh-huh. So I asked them in the restaurant the next morning, or in the kitchen, how they did that, and they said they used the sous vide technique. Which I didn't even know what that was. And this is right. three years ago. So I went home, and I researched it and found out you know, what it was, and I found some guy's blog that showed you how to rig one of these things up on your stove, so we did, and we cooked some steaks that way, and they were great. So I said, we've got to have one of these. And so I started looking, and there was nothing at all for the home cook. I mean, no manufacturer made anything. And I kept looking and looking, and, and finally I came across an interview with Nathan Mirvold, who's kind of the go-to mm-hmm. guy for sous vide cooking in this country. And every interview about sous vide cooking always has a quote from him, and he said uh, that there is no home unit, but someday somebody's going to make one. And I thought, well, if somebody's going to do it, it might as well be us. Good for and you. Since I had an engineering background prior to going to medical school, we we kicked it off, and I we hired a guy that was... Uh, real long-time, old-time pro in the small appliance business. We hired a design firm in London, and the next thing you know, we had a prototype, and we were off and running. Sous vide supremes. How big is this <laughs> How big is this product? How, how much space does it take up on the countertop? It's about the size of, of a bread maker, mm-hmm. about that footprint. And we actually have, the original machine is that size, and then we have an even smaller model for even more compact kitchen that we call the sous vide supreme demi uh, that is... Um, in five fun colors. <laughs> it's many, really for a How a much smaller, food can uh, you cook at a time in, in one of these units? Like in the sous vide supreme and then in the demi? In the sous vide supreme, you can do about 24 four-ounce portions. Um, wow. And in the demi, uh, about mm, 16 to 18 four-ounce portions. You can get plenty in it. Lots okay. of restaurants use it. In fact, we've just launched uh, what we call the sous vide supreme chef, which is a commercial grade um, water oven for, you know, for restaurant kitchens that now has UL commercial approval. So that's uh, what we're here at the restaurant show uh, crowing about. I see. Now, you guys, do you realize that you're uh, in the studio with Jeffrey Steingarten of Vogue <laughs> magazine and Nils Noren, the former director of the French Culinary Institute, who I happen to know from a previous article that I wrote, um, uses sous vide equipment at the FCI restaurant. So, Nils, do you see like a big application for home cooks? How about you, Jeffrey? You love to experiment with gadgets. I know that. Would you be would you be a, 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 a customer for the sous vide supreme? I'd love to know how much it costs. <laughs> uh, well, we can make you a brother in law deal, Jeffrey. You know, uh, the machine itself is three ninety nine now. Not bad. Uh, the retail uh, manufacturer's suggested price for the big machine two ninety nine for uh, for the demi, and the restaurant grade machine is five forty nine. US. And and let me ask you this: How exactly does this work? Let's explain to the listeners what first of all what sous vide means, and how how would you use this in the home? Uh, sous vide is French for under vacuum, mm-hmm. and the, the best way to explain how it works is to explain about cooking a steak. If you cook a steak medium rare, that's um, typically 134 degrees, and normally you cook a steak by throwing it on a grill that's anywhere from four to 500 degrees, and you kind of time it, and you flip it around, and you hope if you do it just right, the middle of the steak is 134, or actually you hope it's a little bit lower than that, so that when you bring it off, it'll continue to cook in the 
middle will get 134. So you've got the middle of this 134 getting progressively more done as it gets toward the edges. With sous vide mm-hmm. cooking, you season the steak, you vacuum seal it in a, in a food-grade pouch, drop it in a water bath at 134 degrees and leave it until it gets cooked. And as soon as it's cooked all the way through, which for a one-inch steak takes about 35 to 40 minutes, as soon as it's cooked all the way through, it's cooked. And you can leave it in, you can pull it out then, or you can pull it out an hour later or two hours later. And whenever you pull it out, it's going to be perfectly medium rare. You open the bag, and then you take the steak, and all you do is put a little sear on each side, just like that pork chop I had, so that you have a little caramelization of the of the edges. And uh, then it's finished, and that's basically sous vide cooking. It's the essence of simplicity. And, and Nils, what you, I see that you have a little comment about that. What was your? Yeah, response? I do. I don't think it's it's actually not that simple. First of all, I think there's there's a couple of things you need to distinguish what's sous vide and what's low temperature cooking. You know, I think most of the proteins is no doesn't really benefit from being put in a vacuum. It's actually uh, often much better just to put it in a plastic bag that will that will be able to to live in a water bath. The other thing is like. It depends on what type of meat, how long you can actually cook it. If you take a piece of tenderloin and you cook it for more than an hour, it actually turns bad because there's not enough connective tissue and fat there to to hold the shape. So it turns to mush. When, for example, if if you do a strip steak, it actually benefits from cooking three hours rather than an hour because it has a lot of connective tissue that will break down and actually tenderizes it. Same as a duck breast... If you cook it more than an hour, it tastes livery. So it's, it's, it's in a way it's simple, but it's not that simple. You actually yeah. need to have quite a bit so of knowledge. You guys need to hire Nils to write a no, cookbook for no, your equipment. Ab- is what we're hearing here. <laughs> yeah, well, no, he's absolutely right about that. I mean, it is a function of the time. You've got time and temperature and texture, and the uh, uh, once you get whatever you're cooking to 134, that's what it is. It's cooked. If that's the temperature you're looking for. And then I wouldn't the more call time that you leave well, it in, the, way, I would the call tender that it gets. Well. Yeah, the tender, more tender it gets. But if you start out with a tender piece of meat, it's absolutely right. It gets a little bit mushy. So you can make tasty pieces of meat, like a flank steak, really good by cooking them several hours. It makes them tender and the right temperature. Um, which you can't really do another way. It's hard to cook flank steak. As a consumer, how would you know what to do? Do you guys, do you publish like a guide with your equipment? We do. We do. The machine comes with a guide, Uh and we have a a series of cookbooks, uh, one that is is sort of a textbook cookbook called Sous Vide for the Home Cook. Right. uh, And then a series of small cookbooklets that are are topical, so poultry, meat, uh, one-pot meals, um, even cocktails. We've uh, got, just launched a, a little uh, book about doing infusions uh, by speeding up uh, the, the time it takes to do an infusion of alcohol or syrup uh, using uh, the sous vide supreme. Cool. So how, how, how does that work with the sous vide supreme in a water bath? Well, then we, you put the, if the alcohol, for example, if you're using uh, vodka or whatever that you want to infuse, uh, in lychee nuts, if you want to make lychee nut vodka, put them together at about 134 in a vacuum bag. Um, drop them in there and, and basically cook it for about uh, 30 minutes, uh, 45 minutes. And when you bring it out and strain it, then it's, it sort of has sped up the process of infusing mm-hmm. the alcohol, but the alcohol can't uh, evaporate or be driven away because it's inside the pouch. But and it works, it works quite well. But don't you change the flavor profile 
by he- heating up the lychee rather than infusing it when it's cold. Like you uh, could I- do, uh, you know, if you had a vacuum machine, you do vacuum infusion would actually probably be much quicker and much better flavor. Mm-hmm. Or if you use it in an ISI bottle and infuse it by, by using uh, nitrous oxide, it's also mm-hmm. faster and mm-hmm. a probably better flavor because you don't alter the temperature. Mm-hmm. Now, you two are doctors. Um, uh-huh. what, kind of doc- what kind of medicine do you practice? Are you we internists? Used, uh, we used to be a primary care physician for uh-huh. years and years. And then, oh, I don't know, 25 years ago, we switched over to nutritional medicine. And we tried to start taking people off of medicines instead of putting them on and trying to treat as many things as we could nutritionally. So one of the reasons why you got interested in sous vide, I'm guessing, is because you feel that there are some health benefits to this, t- to this technique? What, what, yes. Would you Absolutely. like to elaborate on that? Because we only have a couple minutes left with sure. you guys, so yeah, I want to yeah. make sure everybody gets the full concept here. Yeah, because the foods are cooked in a in a vacuum pouch, nothing goes away. I mean, if you uh, cook beets, beets are a great example. I mean, most of the, the colorful uh, components of foods are the, the phytonutrients. That's what's good for you, though, the carotenoids, the lycopenes, and things like that. When you cook beets and you pour all this purple water out, that's a lot of nutrition that's going away. When you take the uh, beets and you seal them in a, in a vacuum pouch and cook them, they're perfectly cooked, but you lose nothing. Same with, with uh, meat. You get no shrinkage or you get you know, teeny tiny bit of shrinkage, and all the nutrients that you start out with in the food stay there. Well, I mean, I found this such a fascinating... Wait, your your mic is not yeah. on yet, Pat. Oh, really? Oh, here you go. Well, I just want to say it's so fascinating. I mean, the fact that there's even a company that produces a sous vide machine, I think, is a tribute to Nils and people like Dave Arnold. You know Absolutely. that this technology is coming. And I also love it as a reward for buying the highest quality foods. Because you don't care if a commodity product loses some of its stuff, but if you have a heritage breed or an organically hand-raised thing, this helps preserve I can nutrients actually see this working really foods. well for heritage yeah. It's a big foods. sustainable thing. But I, w- I would like it. to s- set one thing straight, though. Okay. Uh, and that's the sous vide versus low-temperature cooking. Thank you. You know, sous vide, it's not that important. Like, the, the water bath is itself doesn't make anything sous vide. It's just cooking something in a water bath. And that's what most of the things are is what's useful the actual vacuum is not as useful when cooking either vegetables or proteins so i think it's you know if when people see sous vide they see it as a big hurdle it should be low temperature cooking it's really what's important or cooking in the water bath is what's important the vacuum is not as important and do you have to buy a special piece of equipment to make the vacuum to work in your machine or is that part of the whole package you do. Uh, it comes all as a promo package together, but uh-huh. it is a separate. Uh, a separate oh, so it's a separate charge as well. No, it, it there is a, a promo package I that see. has all of it together with the cookbook, with the, uh, the uh, vacuum sealer, with the pouches, uh, with the machine. And in fact, I think that is what Foodie.net is is giving away in its contest. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, the, talk about the contest for just a second, because then we have to wrap this up. So there's a little contest for a sous vide but supreme. You have to know. Hold on a second. Wait. Oh, Jeff has something to say. Time out. Time out. What Nils was saying that the important thing is the low temperature cooking and not the fact you have a vacuum would be perfectly consistent with the sous vide supreme. There is nothing about the sous vide supreme, as I understand it from what you've said, that actually requires you to suck all the air out of the package. Well, the reason that you do... I've done it with a... I've I've done sous vide in many ways, but but certainly you can do it with a... um, 
with the Ziploc. Ziploc is great. You can write an ordinary Ziploc, and you can kind of squeeze out the air if you don't want too much air in there. Sure. So you is can, it but you have to know that it's one that will withstand the cooking temperatures because I, I had my own little episode with some beans that I was doing, and uh, the, if you don't have a food-grade cooking pouch that is stable at cooking temperatures, even if they're relatively low, they'll sometimes come apart on you. <laughs> so you have to be sure that the pouch you're using is one that will withstand cooking temperatures. Freezer Ziploc bags are perfect. Preservation, yeah. but yeah. that doesn't well, stop people from buying the sous vide machine. Yeah, yeah. well, no, it absolutely not. Yeah, that's I, what the, know, that's, sounds I think like a cool thing. No, no, that's thing what, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and and actually, when you look at the the not so expensive like food savers, they actually don't get to full vacuum. It's no yeah. way that that vacuum yeah. pump is not strong enough. You remove a lot of air, but no, you don't you get a full vacuum. About 20, 20, 3, 24 I think what Nils is promoting is a um, an agreement between you and Ziploc bags. It's a collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I I'm think, saying is, you, like, do it's you not own shares in Ziploc? That's my only yeah. question. I, I wish. News organization. Well, I Mary, wish. Dan, and Mike Eads, I want to thank you very much for um, for not only coming on the show but also um, submitting to all of this hectoring. From our <laughs> <laughs> we don't no, we mind I wish you the very best with the restaurant show. It sounds like a great product, mm-hmm. and you guys best are sponsoring a um, contest with FoodieLink.com. Mm-hmm. So if people are interested. They should go check it out and see if they want to submit a recipe or participate. And Foodie Link is a admirer, a follower, and we're a supporter of it. You know, Absolutely, they're a follower of us at the station. And uh, you know, Foodie Link is an interesting website. Yeah. So thanks so much for being with us today, and, and best pleasure. of luck at the at the restaurant show. I hope it really works out for you guys. Thanks so much thank for, having for having us. Take pleasure. care. Bye-bye. Well, this has been a great show. I want to thank Chris for coming in and then uh, Nils Norin and Jeffrey Well, we're Steinberg. not totally done because we haven't plumbed Nils's depths here. I'm sorry. All right. Well, well okay, well. Come on. Sorry. Five more minutes and, we'll, and, we'll, and then we'll wrap it up. Come on, Nils. Cough it up. What are you doing now? Uh, so, yeah. So, I did leave the French You left the French Galliard. This yeah, is like in, the in, mystery thing here. In, in January, you know, I, I've been still been doing some events and, and other things. Helped them to set up their new catering and events department. But I've also, you know, one of the things I want to, you know, get into more cooking, which I've been doing, and get into a little bit into restaurants again because, you know, I like to, to change things so up. So, you're working with Marcus Samuelson, so, right? Yeah. So, I, I have gone back to work with my, my old colleague. We used to work together for a long time. And right now, I, you know, help to head up all the restaurants in the Samuelson group. That's Whether awesome. that's Red Rooster Harlem, August in the How is Red Rooster West. Harlem doing? Jeff, have you been there yet? No, I haven't been there not. yet, I'm afraid. I, I, I do want to go very badly. Yeah, yeah, me too. But it's, I mean, the, knock on wood, the restaurant's doing extremely well. How has it been received by the lo- the local people there? Really, really well. I mean, it is, it's the most diverse crowd I've seen in any restaurant in New York City. And New York City is a diverse city. Fantastic. City yeah. What a great thing to say about it. And what is the price point? Price point is, it's, it's, I would say it's well priced. You know, there's, I think we have one entree over 30. Otherwise, it's. Between, 24, 25? Yeah, and even 20, 19. Okay. Nice. Uh, so what's the average check? Do you know? Yeah, it's probably about 45, 50. Uh, before tax and tip? or uh, Before tax and tip. And still providing Three. the ingredients that are part and parcel with Marcus Samuelson and yourself. I mean, it's still using... Yeah, yes. top of the line. Uh, yeah, top absolutely. of the line. Now, I think that's unbelievable. And, yeah, pretty, pretty good cocktails, too, I would say. Hey, hey. 
Now we're talking, baby. Yeah. And so, and you're also publishing a cookbook in Sweden. That's yes. very exciting. So, so yeah. The reason why I, you haven't done I, that before, right? No, I haven't. And the reason why I did it in Sweden is because there you can actually they got me. You know, okay, do whatever you want. Yes, it's not going to take two years. You're actually going to be published <laughs> this year, so it's a much shorter process. It's not so bureaucratic. It's not too many people involved. Mm-hmm. It's me, the photographer that I know, and a writer and an art director, and then that's it. So, what's the idea of the cookbook? So the idea is ten techniques, hundred recipes. So because oh. I, I really, mm-hmm. you know, most of the cookbooks today are recipe collections and not as useful as they could be. So I want to do a book that's actually useful and kind of breaks down in bullet points certain techniques and then do recipes to illustrate the technique. I like that. I can't wait until it's translated. Scandinavia is certainly having an explosion in, in the kind Isn't of world restaurant uh, scene. But are they also having an explosion in, in kind of home cooking? Yeah. You think? Yeah. I mean, Sweden has always had a lot of home cooking, more more so than restaurants. But I mean, if that's because they is, had bad restaurants, right? Yeah, because they had bad <laughs> restaurants. Yeah, now they're actually quite good. <laughs> they have very good restaurants. Yeah, now, yeah. Well, yeah. I have. A, I want to announce Jeffrey's new gig, which is three out of four weeks of the month. He will be picked up by Katie. We'll drive to a west. I will drive him side. around and around Over, the island of Manhattan. He knows a little bit oh, about that's everything. Funny. I've, I've, I've never agreed to that. <laughs> I know it's true, <laughs> but yeah, we hope it driving happens. with an extremely unstable driver. <laughs> Listen, if you're if you're bargaining for two weeks a month, fine, you win. We still, Jeff. I would, love this station. I love I this restaurant. So it's hard to three times a week in the yeah, car with, with you with for a couple hours. I'd be a very happy camper. Yeah, you would learn so much. I would absolutely. And Katie could t- tell you all these things about how you know to. Untoughened dinosaur meat. That's right. Its, uh, exactly. Yeah. Sure. And you know, joke. native rhododendron. You know that kind of stuff. You know these old things. Well, I want a series of thanks. Jack Inslee doesn't he do an amazing job? Be week in and week out. I mean, I'd like really to have uh, Jeffrey here every week to fact check for the show. Yeah, <laughs> I think it would be that'd great. be cool. Well, uh, you know, it's not necessary to have me here if uh, Katie is not here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can see beautiful uh, partnership philosophy. Uh, Katie, I right also discovered here. looking at those statistics with Jack <clears throat> that the average American spends on, every day on food about six dollars. So, uh, um, I guess we spend six dollars on a Coke uh, on New York. So we do something like that. Um, it's a lot of eating at home. That kind of implies a lot of home eating. If you're spending six dollars yeah. a day, I mean, I'm trying to de, de quickly deconstruct my grocery bill since I do cook uh, every week and almost every night because I have a child at home. So, um, yeah, I'd say about six or eight dollars a day is probably about right. I've been shut out of this show. This collaboration yeah, totally, I launched on the cook, air. Man. I'm out. I've you been don't voted cook. off the show. We're going to give you some lessons next weekend, math. dude. You don't need to know math. You just need to be able to read. Six to hard eight dollars. Hard to believe you spend so little a day on food. Uh, I am a but frugal cook, my friend. Could you come in with your with my recipe bill, list, please? And yeah, I could. I spend about one hundred fifty a week, but that includes like snacks, which are very expensive. And Katie worked a teenager. as a butcher at Broadway Butcher, so you have a uh-huh. facility. Do you with, remember uh, the Broadway Butcher, Jeffrey? Did you ever go up there? Oh yeah, yeah. But that was my mentor, and my my teacher was Michel Guiton. How many years you worked there, Katie? 
five, but Michel taught me how to cook, and I worked with him for many years before that in a catering capacity. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, those were the days when we thought Montfort of Colorado was like a really big deal. You're like, now we found, and then I subsequently found out that it was the first feedlot. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Was great. Have you factored in the, the kind of new uh, uh, golden Oreos? They are um, the only junk food that I eat. Is there Gold right? Oreos? Golden Blonde. Oreos. No, my daughter does not go for them. She likes the traditional. I personally don't eat cookies, so yeah. No, I don't either. I only consume my calories in liquor, order, but... I order food from the local supermarket. You know, I just can't stop from ordering uh, Golden Oreos. Everything else I get at the, at the green market. You can't get Golden it's Oreos? Better than I do. At the green market? That's no. outrageous. Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> God forbid. I hope it won't be coming. They're like, this is Oreos with ramps. Yeah. <laughs> Regina Shrambling had the funniest post about ramps. I think it was an edible mint. Or I don't know where I saw it, but online she is the funniest writer. And she had a lovely thing about how ramps are no longer ramps. I mean, because now they're cultivated the way wild sa- you know, the way salmon is farmed, ramps are farmed. She was uh-huh. mean to Deborah Madison once. That, that wasn't very nice. You know what? She's, you know, Regina is who she is, but I think she's a great writer. I really enjoy her posts. She's a very I good writer. I love her, and I like her personally very, very much. Yeah, of course, me too. And uh, Gastropoda, her her thing is just, it's a, it's a comedy show from one end to the other, and uh, about as mean as it gets, but really fun. And I would like to say, uh, Roberta's has planted They planted a, a tree, tree and it's a birch the, uh, tree, my a favorite. As of four or five days, Chris built the, uh, Incredible. the base, and it looks lovely, and all right. Well, anyway. we're going to wrap this up here because I can see we're devolving into whatever. So I want to thank our. Can see. But you have to tell you know, me like, later what she, main thing she said about Deborah Madison. Oh well, that'll be Patrick. Oh. But I want to thank Jeffrey Steingarten of Vogue magazine for joining us. Nils Norin, a great pleasure. I hope you'll both come back again and again. Patrick, great to see you as always. As Jack, always, thanks. you look great, Katie. Thanks for engineering and producing, and thanks to the Eads for joining us by phone. And we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is behind. This is behind the scenes food news with Katie Kiefer. I learned recently that the FDA is expanding on subtherapeutic antibiotic use. This came to me via the Food Safety News email blog or newsletter, however you want to call it. Um, and I urge people to check this out. It's a really it's a great production. Um, and this particular article uh, informed me that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has revealed new detail about how antibiotics are used in animal agriculture culture, an issue of growing controversy in food policy and public health circles. According to the FDA, approximately 74% of antibiotics given to food animals are administered subtherapeutically through feed and another 16% through water, with only 3% of antibiotics being administered through injections, which would imply the injections are when an animal is actually sick and the only time they really should be getting subtherapeutic or they should be getting any antibiotics. Subtherapeutic antibiotics, I also learned 
are part of what helps animals convert food to fat or muscle faster, and which is why they're so popular in the animal ag sector. Um, in the le- in a letter late last week, the FDA released this breakdown for the first time to Congresswoman Louis- Louise Slaughter, uh, the Democrat from New York, and the only microbiologist serving in Congress who has taken the lead on curbing the use of antibiotics in agriculture to slow growing antibiotic resistance. Now, you can go on and on, and there's a lot of uh, information out there about this. It's also worth um, worth recognizing that there are studies which say uh, there is no transmission of antibiotics uh, through animal tissue into human tissue through consumption. But um, I wasn't finding a whole lot of those studies, and I was finding an awful lot of studies that were saying the reverse. So, uh, though the jury is out on the use of subtherapeutic antibiotics, um, I think we can expect to hear a lot more controversy, and I think everyone should raise their voice in concern. And it's a great example of know your farmer, know your food, know where you're getting your chow. That's it for today with Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Keeper. There's no problem that Dave Arnold can't solve on his show, Cooking Issues. Take a little listen. So Naveen writes in and says, Hi Dave, I'm fascinated by chocolate, especially the transformation from the bitter seeds of the cacao tree uh, to a tasty chocolate bar. That is a, a, a very interesting transformation. Are there any other foods that undergo a similar set of steps, fermentation, roasting, grinding? Also, do you know of any other tropical fruit seeds that could become delicious through such a process? Thanks, Naveen. That's an interesting question. I mean, obviously coffee, right? Coffee goes through uh, you know, a similar, uh, similar set of procedures, uh, quite literally, uh, fermentation, drying, roasting, grinding, uh, brewing. Um, and uh, vanilla goes through picking uh, fermentation, right? It's dipped in, usually in boiling water, uh, and then wilted, and then fermented. So it's similar, and then I guess it can be ground to form a paste. But vanilla doesn't taste like vanilla until it goes through its its uh, its paces um, to be fermented. In fact, the vanilla that's uncured is called red vanilla. You can get it. Uh, it's interesting. If you like what you hear, you can hear a new show every Tuesday at noon on the Heritage Radio Network, or subscribe to the podcast or check out the archives on our website. The following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. In the next few weeks, Heritage Foods USA will be offering an interesting variety of amazing products, ranging from top-quality seafood to their famous pork cuts. At the end of May, the Heritage team will go up to Maine to harvest fresh lobster with sustainable lobstermen. These delicious lobster are a perfect way to kick off the summer season. In the pork department, Heritage Foods USA will offer the maple-cured smoked boneless heritage ham at an unbeatable price. This offer won't last long, so get them while you can. Place your order today at heritagefoodsusa.com or call 718-389-0985. That's 718-389-0985 to place your order with Andrea or Ashley. And don't forget to sign up for the email list and to check them on Facebook and Twitter to get in on their new products, deals, and offers from Heritage Foods USA.
head was spinning round I heard a soft voice whisper 